You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focused The Driven. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Lynch. David, I uh, trust you are well. I'm well, Giles, in this uh, fickle spring weather. And haven't we got a great and experienced guest to talk with us today? We do indeed. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Ivor Frischnick to back to Energy Insiders. Ivor, I do believe we had you on. Uh, you were one of our very first guests on this podcast back in November 2018 when you were head of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Well, I'm delighted to be back, Giles, and uh, and I was very happy to be one of those early guests and terrific to see that you're going strong going stronger, I should say. Well, very much so. Yes, the audience is much, much bigger than it was back then, but um, we're very happy about that. Um, You have a new role now. You are the head or the country manager in Australia, the Asia Pacific, and Chief Investment Officer, I think, for Sostenio, um, a fund owned by one of the world's biggest asset managers. Um, Tell us about it. Italian-based, um, G- Generali, sorry, and yes. the, the name slipped my mind. Generali, um, Milan-based, I understand, in, in Italy. Tell us about this company and why Sostenio? Yes, well, I'd be delighted to. So it is a greenfield energy transition infrastructure investor. So so let me unpack that because I think it's interesting to, to think about where is Uh, renewables investing going and how is it going to be structured in the future. So the renewables investment value chain really has three distinct risk return profiles. There's the early stage development, which is low dollars, high risk, high returns. Then there's the middle bit, which is the construction that's high dollars, uh, medium risk, lots of expertise needed in that phase. Um, and medium returns as well. That's where we play. And then the final stage requires uh, low expertise, still requires high dollars and relatively low returns. That's when it's fully de-risked, fully operational and, um, and, and running for the long term. And our view is that and I believe that the industry is is going to end up structured this way, is that three different pots of capital have three different types of preferences, and there will be three different types of uh, owners at each stage of the, the project. So oh. anyway, we play in that middle phase. And how much money have you got? Uh, well, I can tell you that it is north of 500 million euros. It's, it's in a fund that we manage uh, rather than being our own money. Um, we're a fund manager. Okay. So. Now, so your first investment in Australia has been announced this week. Um, you've bought 100% of the equity of what's known as the Kurangi um, Energy Storage System. 
which is located in northwest Victoria in a region that uh, Renew Economy dubbed many years ago the rhombus of regret, uh, simply because of the problems they had when they built a lot of wind and solar farms and found themselves heavily curtailed. Um, this battery is quite an interesting one. It was developed by Edify Energy. They landed a contract with AEMO to provide system strength. Now, we've heard a bit on this podcast about grid-forming inverters and their ability to provide system strength, but the the interesting thing about this battery is actually got a, it's the first one to actually have a 20-year contract to do that. Can you just tell us why that's particularly interesting and what it actually does? Yes. So system strength can mean different things to different people. So uh, back in my arena days and uh, post my time at arena, arena has continued to support some of the early um, uh, grid forming inverters and batteries uh, acting in a system strength type capacity. If they're providing those services to networks, uh, they can be quite bespoke services to those particular locations and the particular needs of the network in that location. Now, this is a market service that's being provided. Um, so the market operator has a need in this particular location and has contracted for a service. So if you think about analogs that have um, been provided in the past to supply this kind of service, they're typically synchronous condensers. So a synchronous condenser or a syncon is a big spinning um, machine. It's a, it's a very heavy thing that keeps spinning and uh, through, um, through that inertia that it has, it provides the grid services that generators, typically um, fossil gas or hydro generators can supply through um, having a big spinning mass. Now a syncon can provide that without the generation, uh, but it has no other purpose, right? It only exists, and it's a pretty expensive bit of kit to spin and provide grid support services. A battery, of course, can supply a whole range of services, FCAS, uh, it can firm up renewables. In fact, those two services are primary, the primary revenue model for a battery. But it turns out that it can supply these other services, so uh, grid forming, inertia, uh, fault current, it can inject reactive power to support the voltage. Uh, those services are effectively provided alongside uh, the other services that are more traditionally thought of as, as the core of what a battery does. Now, they do add some cost to the battery. Uh, they add a little bit of technical complexity, but, um, but it's much, much less cost than you would have to pay to get a... Um, a dedicated SINCON to provide the same service. So it's it's really quite exciting because any battery in theory could provide this service. And then you could even take the next step and say, well, any inverter with a small amount of storage can provide these sorts of services, whether big or small. So I think that's the future. And in fact, uh, just I don't want to ask the questions yet, but I just mentioned that power walls and any uh, lots of home batteries actually can provide I think, or, uh, uh, I can't remember whether they need that the, the, they can provide standalone support without being connected to the grid, which qualifies them as virtual synchronous machines, uh, grid forming inverters, doesn't it? That, that is correct. I don't believe that they can provide it for the grid, at least not yet. But in 
and so they can provide it for the household or the or the building that they're in. Um, I don't see but, ten kilowatts run, or thirteen kilowatts running the grid just yet, but no, never mind. <laughs> well, but but if you if they all did the exact same thing, in theory, they could do exactly that, right? In, in aggregate, there's actually a whole lot of power walls. And in fact, uh, we're getting way off what I wanted to talk about, uh, but I've always fancied this idea that if you looked at the grid as being very, very distributed, you have this idea of cooperative uh, networks, the street level, the house can support the street, the street can support the suburb, and, and, and you have you have these virtual synchronous machines where voltage is the currency and they autonomously respond to a voltage change in their region uh, and if the wider voltage is weak, then then they they try harder. But uh, anyway, Ivor, I, I, I'm off the topic. I, no, that's no, no, that's, it's, it's a good topic. Let's just pursue that actually, because just I just got one more question on that thing before we sort of diverge off to what you want to talk about, David. And um, but yeah, but but the fact that the grid inverters can the the, the inverters can do this as you've described, Evo, that really invites a complete new way of thinking about the grid, and really provides this this avenue or a tunnel at least towards that 100% renewables that so many people still tell us is simply not possible. Well, that's right. And I think it's a recognition by an implicit recognition by EMO and by others that a 100% renewables grid is, is entirely possible. And, and here we're talking about an instantaneous grid, right, for a period of time, not necessarily 100% for all moments of all days, um, simply because that there's a different problem there, which is filling in the gaps uh, between renewables. Occasionally, there will be there will be some, but um, in an instantaneous sense, this argument that we need to have um, spinning traditional generators online, uh, I think that argument has fallen away now. And while we're just talking about the technical side, which is not where I wanted to actually necessarily spend so much time, but it, but it does fascinate me as we move to a, an inverter-based grid, which we surely are. Uh, one of the things, discussions in previously about the differences between syncons and virtual synchronous machines or grid-forming inverters, which, and, and you know, to be clear for anyone who isn't already, it's, it's a battery plus an inverter that makes one of these things a power source uh, plus plus something to manage frequency. Um, um, uh, either it's one of the things about it was that uh, they don't provide as much fault current, like syn syncons can provide more fault current, I guess, for some given denominator, and I'm not even sure what the denominator is, but could you comment on that? Well, uh, and I'm not a technical expert here to tell you exactly how a syncon can relate to um, the fault current that a battery can provide, but uh, batteries can absolutely provide some fault current. They can also uh, overpower for short periods of time. So uh, it's not unusual if you have a, a battery rated for 100 megawatts, for example, that it could put out 200 megawatts for a second or a couple of seconds, so uh, I think I think the the capabilities of fault current uh, protection are still being evaluated for batteries, but they certainly have uh, quite some capabilities that are that are useful certainly to the grid. Uh, and Ivor, again, we, we'll probably need to get Stephen Sproul or Baruz Barani back to talk on this. But uh, one of the questions I've heard also is that as we have more and more of these virtual synchronous machines on the grid, 
and they are kind of each one is tuned i always like to use the um uh, analogy of, a, of a, a, a guitar amplifier simulator as opposed to the amplifier but as, as they're all tuned uh then maybe they don't play so well together if you know what i mean there's a question mark still over how well all, all these uh grid forming inverters will play when they're all hooked up to each other do you have any uh thoughts about that yeah again this is being worked through but there are you, you can end up with uh, oscillations where basically one is bouncing off the other and they're, and they're reacting in ways that are unhelpful um so so um amplifying an oscillation which can lead to instability but again there are technical solutions to this that um, uh, that that exist already it's more about a a, um, a matter of everyone having confidence that those solutions work yeah i think that's exactly right in australia i suppose in the NEM, we're, we're leading the way are, are we not in uh, this regard but if if i move back to to your uh well let's move up the chain if i look at the financing of the battery i think you mentioned that sosteno has um uh if i've pronounced it wrongly uh has has about 500 million uh euro uh, and for this battery uh do, do you you'll be using some debt finance as well yes that's right yeah because it's a heavily contracted battery there are a number of lenders involved and there's a, a quite good leverage that was achieved uh, I'm typically thinking of 50 or 60 percent or something like that. But in the revenue model, you've got a contract for the like frequency control, and another contract uh, for the capacity, don't you? Uh, where someone else is like going to trade it. Uh, everyone says it's arbitrage, but it's trading in the kind of daily market. Could you just explain how that works and how they fit together? Yeah, so there are two different contracts. One contract is for what I would describe as the traditional revenue sources for a battery, so namely um, intraday arbitrage or, or firming of renewables between uh, mostly solar that's generated uh, during the day into the evening and the morning peaks, and, and then also FCAS. And that is a contract that shell holds and they have the right to trade the battery and and use the capacity of the battery for that purpose and then separately there's a contract with aemo to provide the grid support services uh, those services uh, tend to be transient so of very short duration um, milliseconds maybe seconds at most and can therefore be provided uh, effectively alongside the more traditional services. They do use uh, certainly the inverter capacity and they use some very minimal uh, capacity in the battery itself, but should not uh, in any way impede the provision of the more traditional services from the battery. So in terms of a five minute settlement and the amount of energy that, that Shell might require, e even if this battery had, had to be doing something for system service, like charging instead of discharging, uh, it, it wouldn't matter. Well, that's correct. Good, because because it's providing a it's providing reactive power for a second or something like that. Right. Good. All right. And and then your fund itself. Can you just talk a little bit about what the objective of the fund is? Obviously, it's to make money. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, 
does it have any like does it want to be a big player in in the renewable space or does it just want to be a battery financier or is it got some environmental or social objective can you just uh, explain a little bit absolutely and for people who know me, they know that I'm very focused on, on purpose. And so our purpose is, is absolutely to further the energy transition. Um, and that is what we invest in, energy transition infrastructure. So that's more broad than renewables. Um, so traditional renewables and most of the investing happening these days is in solar and storage with, with some wind as well. Um, we certainly do those, but we go beyond that to look at um, for example, industrial assets that are transitioning, say an industrial transformation or an energy efficiency upgrade. We're also looking at uh, relatively new and less bankable assets like uh, like hydrogen or in Europe, there's geothermal in, in volcanic areas. So um, uh, we like the idea of making new asset classes or, or slightly um, less well recognized and less banked asset classes like for example industrial behind the meter batteries or heat pumps uh, making those bankable as well and and turning them into effectively infrastructure assets and when i say infrastructure what we mean by that is um, returns that are relatively predictable so we um, as a fund manager we uh, like to deliver returns that are uh, stable, and because they are relatively stable, the cost of capital is not overly high, and our ambition is just to have as big of an impact as possible. And that's also why we focus on the construction part, because we happen to have the expertise there, and we need to build these assets. We need to build a lot of them. Um, we don't simply need to change hands once they're already built that doesn't add as much value in our view sure enough I, I i talked infrastructure as an infrastructure analyst at big investment banks for many years i saw a lot about it but uh, um I, i'll hand back to uh giles after this one last question and we could talk about a lot of topics but either you're very experienced in, in in looking at this from the early days one of the big debates at the moment is about uh, the separate roles of government and the private sector. And a question that's been raised a number of times is to about policy mechanisms and things is the way that the, the public sector can crowd out the private sector. But on the other hand, the private sector, uh, you know, may be risk averse and wouldn't care if the lights went out. Uh, uh, and you, I just wondered if you had any sort of thoughts about the appropriate roles and whether the policy settings are, are, are good at the moment or what you'd be doing if you were um, uh, Chris Bowen. Oh, well, that's a big question and I don't want to run into, into trouble with Chris Bowen. But um, by and large, uh, governments, both state and federal, are doing what they can in Australia at the moment. Um, uh, so, so it's good to see that they are taking quite different approaches. And uh, in Queensland, where I, I also serve on the board of CleanCo, which is one of the uh, major government-owned generators in, in Queensland. Uh, so I'm seeing what the government can do, the state government, in that kind of context. I do think it's really important for governments to try to provide some certainty in the space. And that certainty can come in the form of 
uh, revenue underwriting in some ways, or it can come in the form of direct ownership. Um, the markets don't really need the capital. There's there's plenty of capital like like ours that's out there, but if you don't have relatively stable returns, the risk goes up a lot, and therefore the cost goes up a lot because these are capital intensive assets, and uh, if the risk is high, then you're going to pay a whole lot more for them. So uh, that's one area where I think governments can play. Um, the other is, um, and we touched on it earlier, is really going into distributed energy. So uh, my view is that that is just a massively uh, undervalued opportunity at the moment. The fact that so many Australian households and, and increasingly businesses as well have rooftop solar, increasingly they're having batteries, they're, having, they're going to have EV charging, uh, we're going to electrify with heat pumps and, and other co potentially controllable devices. If we can integrate all of that into the grid more effectively, and, and government has a huge role to play in facilitating that, that's just going to make the whole system work better and be cheaper for all of us. So let's just tease out those two things then. Um, first, just getting back to the investment signal from, from governments and you wanting a stable return. What does that kind of look like in terms of policy then? Does that mean a rent extended beyond 2030? Does that mean uh, uh, what other sort of policy mechanisms would you like to see in there? It, it can mean uh, any of those, right? So it could mean an extended rent. It could mean some sort of... Um, uh, safeguard mechanism with tradable credits. It could mean New South Wales standard, uh, New South Wales type LTESA underwriting. Uh, so there's a kind of a minimum, there's a floor to the revenue programs that they have in, in place. You can have direct auctions like in, in Victoria um, or, or you, you know, in Queensland, the government owned corporations are going out and, and um, signing PPAs and also just directly acquiring and developing assets themselves. So, so any of those are, are good paths to large scale development. I don't think the same approach works to small scale. That's a very different type yeah. of policy environment. But just but, but but what you've described though is that every every different state has seems to have a different thing. So, do you want to see that standardised across across the country, or is it okay that we actually have at least those things in place? Well, look, I mean, as, particularly as a foreign investor, I think it's much easier to understand if you've got one scheme that covers the whole country. But uh, you know, we can uh, as as an investor. So speaking for ourselves now, Sostenio. We have the expertise here to understand the different state schemes, and we can we can work with that. I think the main issue is that there needs to be some stability and some certainty uh, to the revenue side of the equation. Otherwise, you're asking the investors to take a lot of risk, which, coming back to my prior point, just increases the cost a lot. Okay. Yeah. Now, distributed energy, you, you touched on that um, a, a few moments ago. Um, you talked about you know the opportunity that rooftop solar, battery storage, EVs, heat pumps, demand management, ha and you said there was a role of, for, for governments there. So what would you like to see? Because we do talk a lot about distributed generation, but and there seems to be a bit of a theme emerging over the last few weeks and months. A lot of people, a lot more people are talking about it and just thinking about this missed opportunity that we seem to be having because we're not 
integrating it properly and we seem to be scared of it rather than embracing it although i kind of see a bit of a switch at the moment but can't quite put my finger on it what's what's your assessment well it's great to see it getting a bit more airtime and it is and maybe i should focus for a moment just on what it is because i think there's some confusion around uh the term DER, distributed energy resources customer owned energy resources um and, and distribution network-based resources, they're all, uh, from my perspective, from a technical perspective, they're all assets and uh, energy generators, energy storage, energy users that are controllable that are on the distribution network. It doesn't, doesn't really matter whether they're third-party owned, customer owned, behind the meter, in front of the meter from a technical perspective. Now, those distinctions matter a lot when you get to social license, right? People need to understand why somebody wants to control their heat pump or their EV charging or their battery, and they should be paid for that, and they should be allowed to opt in. And, and we've done a we've done a horrible job of that of explaining those um, those issues to people and why it's in their interest to participate. Uh, but we we need to do a much better job, and I think government certainly has a role there. Uh, maybe there's even a regulatory role uh, in certain circumstances, and we've seen that in South Australia and WA, for example, where the government has said, "Well, look, we're just going to have to shut your PV off on certain occasions for the safety of the grid." Um, I don't know if we should be extending that to say, well, uh, maybe you need to just participate in these markets in certain circumstances for, again, for the safety uh, of the local grid, because wouldn't we be better off to stop EV charging or even turn people's hot water system off than to have a widespread blackout? Um, so social license is a big big role for government setting the standards so ensuring that all these devices actually are controllable in some way that they can uh, talk to either one another or to the central dispatch um, system whatever that is and then the other bit of it is that the distribution networks right they don't currently have an incentive to really be helpful. Uh, they have an incentive to invest as much as possible to solve the problems of lots of rooftop solar, lots of EV charging. They would be delighted to invest in, in heavy assets uh, that they then get a return on through the uh, regulated asset base. They would be delighted to have that show up as revenue for them as opposed to making use of the assets that sit behind the meter. Um, so yeah, the, a whole whole range of issues there. So it sounds like a couple of rule changes that you'd like to propose, or sort of policy incentives that you'd like to suggest. That because um, we kind of hear that. I, I think it goes beyond rule rule changes. Uh, I mean, we've got this model based on the separation of market facing uh, versus monopoly assets, and that's a, a model inherited from the UK. And is in contrast to say the USA model, which looks at the a geographical unit. Uh, there are pluses and minuses to both, but I think it's it's more than a rule change. Evo, um, what, what needs to happen? Well, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna advocate for it, it, because it's a very complicated area. I'm not gonna advocate for any particular changes, but I do think it's an area that the government needs to dive into, and and really take control of and say, well, here is how it's going to work in a way that is, is just going to benefit the system overall a whole lot better. Um, 
planning, let's talk about planning, which we do pretty well. You know, people argue about how good the ISP is, but we do it pretty well at the transmission level for transmission networks and large scale generation. There is no equivalent at the distribution level. We, the ISP simply takes a set of assumptions um, and holds them fixed for their modeling purposes about the about the rooftop solar and other distributed assets. So um, Victoria is now just starting down the path of doing what they call an enhanced system planning project. So an ESP instead of an ISP, uh, which is going to try to, to drive an ISP type level of planning to the distribution networks. But we really need to be doing that um, across Australia. And I bet that if we did that and we did it well, we would figure out a way to reduce our investment in centralized transmission and generation and storage. Well, well, you know, on the other hand, the ISP is only a planning document and only applies to transmission really in, a, in its outcome it, and has a, a modelled cost uh, of, of new assets. And uh, you mentioned Cleanco, but I think Queensland, uh, which is, and I think of the pumped hydro projects there, and if you, you know, the let's be honest, fantastic increase in cost versus what we what people thought a few years ago for Snowy 2 and Barumba. Snowy 2 at 12 billion and, and Barumba 14 billion. And if I read Barumba through to the Pioneer uh, one, then the total cost of the two of them would be over 40 billion. And that results in, a, in my opinion, in, in almost an unacceptably high price to consumers. Uh, if you do a net present value model on it, and yet at the same time, the IS part of the ISP that's been totally and utterly ignored by policymakers was that so much of the firming was going to come from household storage. Now that wasn't a policy thing; that was a co because they they modelled costs to to work that way. And I must say, when I look at the cost of pumped hydro, I can't understand why more policy at either state or federal level hasn't been directed towards taking advantage of household storage, which would reduce uh, the need for a lot of sort of mandatory control if it was done properly. Yes, you make an excellent point. And, and the only thing I can say to that is there's a, a lot of thinking... Um, in the energy system, in the energy sector, people who've been in this space for a long time, we, and, and I put myself in this category to some extent, we uh, think about energy, electricity as being centralized, right? If you go back 20 years, there wasn't, there simply wasn't an option to make use of distributed assets. And I think that thinking still is dominant among those who know how the system really works. I think that's so true. I mean, just, um, you know, sort of that, why those household distributed assets were ignored. I mean, if you go back, you just see so many headlines. Snowy Hydro, for instance, when it's trying to justify Snowy Hydro, when it only cost $2 billion, was trying to say, well, you need 6 million household batteries to replace this. Um, of course, that was complete bunkum, and now Snowy 2.0 cost $12 billion. And it's rather disturbing to see the Queensland government um, almost advancing the same sort of argument in support of Barumba, which is going to be a $14 billion project plus whatever the blowout might be and saying 
making a comparison again with uh, household batteries and how many gazillion household batteries you need to do the same thing. So it's that sort of centralised thinking, uh, which leads me to my last question, at least, um, Ivor. When we had you on the programme in 2018 and we talked about the path to 100% renewables, and it was probably at a time when people still didn't quite believe that, that could possibly be, ever even happen, and it was, a, it was a noble goal, and yeah, sure, wave your flag, and that's fine, but you know, we're never going to get there. Um, AEMO is now sort of saying, well, we could have instantaneous renewables 100% by 2025, and um, even the potential renewables we've got in the system now is almost that much, uh, but most of it gets, a lot of it gets curtailed. What's your, what's your thinking on, on that? I mean, how close are we? How far are we? How real is it? I mean, I mean is 100% renewables? I mean, I noticed you, you made the distinction earlier in this podcast about instantaneous versus year-round, and year-round 100% renewables obviously has major challenges in terms of sort of filling in the, the long-duration storage gaps. But um, maybe just update us with your views on that, on that now. Well, instantaneous I don't think is a major challenge anymore. As we talked about earlier, there are still some minor issues to sort out, some confidence to be gained, but we should be absolutely able to get there by 2025, if, if not before. Once we can get to that, there's no impediment to getting to 100% renewables year round. It then becomes a cost issue. And uh, standard lithium ion batteries plus demand response plus uh, you know shif shifting uh, loads around in industry and so on should be able to get us um, using just wind and solar should be get, able to get us through an average night um, and then it becomes a question of economics how much do you overbuild the battery storage and the renewables generation versus having some other some other solution to fill in the final five or 10%. So my view is we should be focused on getting to 90% renewables or, or whatever that number is that doesn't require heroic storage of some of some sort, you know, multi-day, multi-week, multi-month type storage, because that is just gonna be phenomenally expensive. And, and we use gas peakers which over time could be decarbonized. So we could use uh, bioenergy, uh, biogas, uh, we could use hydrogen, uh, which both of which would be really expensive, but we'll use them in decreasing amounts. Uh, just as a comparison, for example, there's a fleet of uh, gas peakers that are being built in Europe that I happen to have had a look at not long ago uh, that are due to have a uh, three percent capacity factor when they start operation next year and in 15 years they're due to be at um, I think 0.15 capacity factor just to give you a sense of how little they would be used and so even if they used fossil gas the carbon footprint would be pretty small if that was a grid-wide uh, phenomenon. Yes, but uh, you still have to pay for all the gas network, just speaking as an infrastructure uh, 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 person. And if you're reducing gas uh, all over the place, uh, it, it's it's kind of an issue, but not one I, I agree with your point very broadly, very much so. One other thing, my last question is and emerging technologies. And there's an awful lot of people who uh, get very excited about a vehicle to the grid. And I suppose when EVs are making up close to 10%, is it, Giles, of, of car sales now? 8% I mean, so far in Australia. Yep. 
yeah, I mean, that's probably double the rate of uh, household batteries in, in units and, and in capacity, it's probably like five or six times as much. But it doesn't seem to me there's any real technology that exists yet in terms of the interface between the house and the car or, or the workplace and the car to enable this to happen. What do you see emerging in that space? Well, it's a warranty issue, right? Because you've got um, it, the battery manufacturer, the, the car maker, the OEM, doesn't know what the cycles are going to be on the battery. So how can they provide a warranty for that? Um, that That is a key issue. Now, California has just legislated to require um, that vehicle to grid exists. Um, I can't remember what year, I think two, three years from now for new vehicles sold. So I think that is probably the way to make it happen. But we can actually get much of the value of um, of EVs just being fully controllable, right? So, so getting to a full vehicle to grid is certainly first prize, but second prize would be uh, to just have EVs plugged into smart chargers wherever they are parked and and making sure that the charging is fully controlled so that when the solar that's is grid, 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 yeah. grid, to ve grid to vehicle control be, uh, before vehicle to grid. That's right. Yeah. And we're not there. There's a large number of the uh, EVs being sold in Australia. And I think you've written about this uh, are not being plugged into smart chargers at all. They're being even fast chargers are sometimes dumb chargers. Uh, yeah, I use um charger. It's uh, cheaper, thousands of dollars cheaper. <laughs> well, and that's the problem. Again, we could. This is where government could step in and say, "Well, look, if if you're going to plug in your EV, you need you need to have a smart charger, at least be capable of of being controlled." Well, I've got a pretty simple solution. I basically sort of charge when the sun's shining. So. Um... You know, that's um, that might sound dumb, but it sounds pretty smart to me because it's my rooftop solar charge in the car. So um, anyway, and Giles, this raises another question. You know, of the engineer who wants to control everything, or at least have the ability to control, and the economist like me. Who, well, I'm not an economist; I'm an analyst that that wants to set a price, and just assumes that human behaviour, if the tariffs are set properly, mass human behaviour is very statistically predictable. Uh, and would let consumers control what they do, but they would do the right thing because the price incentives were there as, as opposed to being forced into an engineering corral. But uh, I'm not, we're not going to settle that here either. Yeah, I think actually some of the studies that have been done actually showed that most people do sort of charge sensibly, if that's the right word. Uh, so people with solar will charge with solar the roof. Um, people with off-peak tariffs tariffs between midnight and dawn will do that and that there was actually not so many people that were just trying to plug in and uh, at the height of peak demand in the evening so um so maybe we don't need quite as much as people sort of thought but i mean i guess when evs become like mass and so not just uh not just early adopters um maybe that behavior um might be different but anyway Anyway, Ivo, um, it's been fascinating to talk to you again. So, um, welcome back. We've had great having you back on the program, and congratulations you. on your new gig. I mean, we should actually just point out that uh, Sostenio was only um, unveiled um, a month ago, and this is your first project. I understand you've got more coming. Uh, we look forward to hearing about them. Well, thank you very much. Yes, it's very exciting.
Yeah, good on you. Okay, um, that was uh, Ivo Fushnik, the um, head of country for Sustenio, um, part of the uh, uh, Masters of Italian Funds Management Group. And uh, we'll be back after a a short break. Welcome back to the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, you're listening to Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and David Leach is with me from ITK. Uh, David, look, a fascinating conversation with Evo. Um, always like talking to Evo. Um, just point out also that the former AEMO boss, Audrey Zieberman, sits on the board of Sustenio. And it's fascinating. Um, Evo did point to the uh, no shortage of capital. So you've got Generali, which is one, is one of the world's biggest uh, asset managers. Plus, you've got um, you've got BlackRock, which owns Acacia Energy, which is building the Waratah super battery. Uh, you've got Brookfield, who we know is um, trying to take over Origin Energy, and then any amount of deep-pocketed sort of pension funds from Abu Dhabi and the Ontario Teachers Funds, all backing. Yes, Giles, that's right. At the same time, there's a need for those people. One of the enduring themes of most markets is that they start out with like small guys, entrepreneurs, cowboys, frontier players, uh, and then gradually the market tends to consolidate down into a few uh, players who have uh, much bigger pockets. And you know, when we're looking at things like the, so say, the McIntyre Wind Farm or Golden Plains, each of which is around a gigawatt, and McIntyre can be two gigawatts, that's like uh, four billion plus of capital. It takes a big commitment to actually put all that much money on the line. And, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more big pro, sorry, we're going to see more big projects and less small projects in the total mix. And we need players with deep pockets and uh, players with confidence. Confidence becomes a big deal when you're putting down a billion or two billion dollars. Well, look, that's true. Yes, although I should um, point out that um, there's still a lot of people doing a lot of small projects around the place. It's um, one of the subjects I'd like to sort of write about and talk about maybe on this podcast is also some of the people running around building uh, quite small solar and battery projects around about five megawatts. Um, and they're, um, as I said, the combined solar and batteries, but they look to a, a emote like it's just a, a five megawatt dispatchable um, machine. So um, quite yes. interesting. So yeah, they, they, but they don't need a, um, uh, you know, a, a GPS thing. For exactly. Five mega, it's wonderful. It is. It is. It's very, very good. Yes, and that was an interesting theme. I, I, um, you, I don't think you managed to get down there, but um, the all energy conference was. Um, was quite significant last week. Um, I spent two days down there. We had a stand, um, thanks to all those people who dropped in and uh, said hello and said they liked reading the website and uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, it was very gratifying. But it was so big, David, I actually didn't actually get to the other side of the conference in the whole two days. We're sort of... <laughs> And and there was so many different streams of so many interesting topics. I mean, I barely got to to five percent of them. But um, I don't know whether it's too big. But um, fascinating that there's that many people out there, that many stands, that much to talk about, and that many people interested. Fifteen thousand registrations, I think. So um, nearly as many people as we get in this podcast each week. 
Uh, probably that's right, Giles. I, uh, I, <laughs> I'm glad you had a thing going on down there. Um, uh, I think a lot of it happens off the conference floor, which is probably just as well because a lot of the presentations, it seems to me, sometimes that these things are only corporate advertising to start with and all the real meetings happen outside. Oh, uh, and it, anyhow, uh, I'm not sure what else there is to talk about uh, this week except uh, on my, this pumped hydro. You know, I do think pumped hydro is getting too expensive and I think the West Australian government uh, said much the same thing, didn't they? Well, that's interesting, actually. Yes, they got excited about pumped hydro this time last year, um, particularly as they sort of crystallised their thinking about the closure of the last of the coal-fired, the state-owned coal-fired power generators. Um, I don't think the, the private coal-fired power generator is going to last, last much longer. Uh, and thinking about um, pumped hydro, but they've um, had a report from Synergy, which is the state-owned generator, which has looked into it. And we haven't seen the report. We've just heard what the Synergy CEO and what the government is telling us about it. And basically, it seems like it's a bit of a no-go. So they're going to have to start thinking about something else in terms of long-duration storage. They're building a whole bunch of very big... Uh, like 500 megawatt four-hour batteries, at least two of them are going in, and there's NEONs, which could will end up being roughly the same size, or one gigawatt and four gigawatt hours. But they're going to have to need something uh, with even longer duration storage than that. So it's going to. Well, yes, as well as gas, I, I want to point out that if you've got two four-hour 500 megawatt batteries, that's like one 250 megawatt 16-hour battery. Uh, and that's the great thing about batteries. You don't have to operate them all at once. And uh, I also want to point out that because of that, you get much more power and you can configure that power how you like. And so you can charge your batteries very much more quickly uh, when there's a big surplus than if you're just trying to fully charge long duration storage, which definitionally uh, doesn't have that much power normally. And so there's that uh, trade-off. The other thing I quickly wanted to mention, well, since we talked about Queensland in the interview, is just how quickly Queensland's getting on with its uh, wind development. It was a laggard, but uh, ever since uh, they've adopted the uh, Energy and Jobs Plan, which is a fantastic plan in many respects, uh, we've since then seen, uh, I think, over three and a half gigawatts of wind PPAs, not all of which is for wind farms that are in construction yet, and more things going on besides that. And so Queensland's really the, the driving force, as far as I'm concerned, in renewable energy development just at the moment. Yeah, and we should be thankful for that too, because there's every chance, given the current sort of polls at the moment, the polling that the Labor government may not be returned when it, um, uh, it faces an election next year. So I think there's a bit of an urgency of rolling out a lot of these contracts now to lock them in, because um, we don't know what the LNP policy is, but one can safe to assume that it's not terribly pro-renewables but um, we'll wait and see that and um, I just suppose on that it was there was some interesting articles over the weekend um, about Barnaby's um, Barnaby Joyce's extensive role and look you can sort of mock Barnaby Joyce as um, being a bit of a fool and a man in a big hat saying some stupid things but he is certainly um, he does pull some strings in certain parts of the literature and there's certain uh, people out there and he's yeah, no, he is doing that. He's stirring up uh, all the opposition in his usual useless fashion, uh, frankly. A I, 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 few politicians I dislike more than Barnaby Joyce, and there's quite a lot of politicians to the, in, that, in that race. 
Um, uh, but, you know, talking about stupid people in big hats, uh, I've, uh, or not stupid, but people in big hats who, who seem like they're making a fool, you'd far rather have Bob Catter, who really works hard for his electorate and be, be, <laughs> believes in everything, but we should just, rather than Barnaby, you know, like, I mean, both Barnaby, uh, Giles, and, and uh, Bob Brown, I mean, the transmission guys must wonder what they've done wrong when they've got both of those guys against them at once. But at least Bob Brown does it from a point of view of integrity and something he's always believed in. Uh, whereas uh, for, for Barnaby, it's just wherever he can stir up something and get a vote. He's, the guy's got no morality at all. But anyway. Well, I think that's a very interesting way to probably conclude this podcast, actually, because while we are sort of talking with people like Evo about some of the developments and the sort of the march towards 100% renewable, I mean, have no doubt that there are dark forces working behind the scenes and not necessarily behind the scenes, but in front of the scenes, um, um, sort of um, aiming to stop that. And um, it'll be really interesting to get more information about exactly where this funding has come from, because one of the things that we've noticed at Renew Economy, and I think it was evident in the referendum campaign, uh, the referendum recently the voice referendum that there is just this massive misinformation campaign and it's not just coming from sort of grassroots this has been funded very well um funded programs videos presentations i mean it's it's very organized and it's actually quite disturbing and so when we think about the possibilities and the advance towards going 100 percent renewables and zero emissions we need to be aware of this sort of campaign to try and derail that and i think this sort of may emerge as a growing issue in coming months because we've certainly seen an an extraordinary intensity of it in in, uh, I don't want to talk about politics any more than I have to, but the basic philosophy is uh, you've got to believe the good guys win in the end and, and d- democracy lets everyone have a say, Giles, and maybe we'll just leave it there. Sounds like a US movie film. Okay, um, thanks, David. Um, thanks for Ivor Frischnick to, uh, uh, coming on the podcast once again. Good to have him back after a five-year gap. Um, thanks to everybody out there uh, for your support. Thanks to all those people who came around and said hello at the All Energy Conference last week. Congratulations to the organisers for that show. And we'll be back again this time next week. Oh, thanks to our sponsors, of course, Evergen and Pylon. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.